Again, a very pleasant good morning to each and every one, and what a joyous opportunity we have this morning to come together, having been blessed so richly in terms of those blessings that we might describe as weather-related, but also the fellowship that we enjoy one with another and the precious opportunity to engage in a consideration of His Word, that we might day by day be drawn nearer and closer to Him, all the while, as God speaks to us through that word, He challenges us, but also holds before us the greatest of rewards and the most powerful end of the journey that we have waiting for us. It's so good to see the number that are gathered with us today. We will, as you can see by also the bulletin as well as what's on the wall to my left, study a bit this morning about the nature of miracles. It is interesting to consider in regard to miracles that there are many questions related to them. They seem to be a rather intense subject of interest. Perhaps in discussions with others, we've each heard various comments made about miracles, the character related to them, the significance of them, all the while the questions that may relate to them, such that one might say, did they exist in Bible times? Do they exist today? If they do exist today, who is able to perform them and for what reason are they performed? If they do not exist today, then when did they cease, and why are they not done today? All of those are fair questions, good questions in fact. May we suggest the only place to which we might go to find answers to them would be the Holy Word of God. And it is to that that we shall turn this morning. It would be fair to say at the outset that as you and I look through the Scriptures, we seem to find many references to miracles. In fact, so many that we cannot take the mention of them lightly. There have been various philosophers through the ages who, upon reading the biblical description of miracles, were so disgusted with that thought, so much oppositional or against it, that they, in fact, accused the very scriptures in the Bible itself of being blatantly, ridiculously wrong. Some of the most noble scholars, it seems, have not only borrowed that idea, but have written books that have influenced many throughout the centuries in ways that are not good. Our interest today will, of course, not be the philosopher's thoughts, but what does the Bible say about them? And for an introductory set of statements, could I ask you to note the following thoughts with me? First of all, we should admit, and very powerfully so at the outset of our lesson, that the great God of heaven, Jehovah God Himself, is unlimited in His power. He is able to accomplish all things in accordance to His will, in whatever means He finds at His disposal. He is absolutely unlimited. Ah, Lord God, Thou hast made heaven and the earth by Thy outstretched arm and by Thy great power, and there is nothing too hard for Thee, proclaimed in Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. In Psalm 135, as well as in Psalm 115, we see there on two occasions the statements that God hath done all things that pleased Him. No limitations on the means of accomplishing it. God's power is that great. God's power is that mighty and that forceful. And so could we not then say the universe itself testifies in the physical realm to God's greatness? Each day as we rise and see that gigantic sun that waits us over the horizon, as we see the pristine beauty of a cool, crisp fall morning, as we appreciate the very inner workings of the human frame, are we not all able to say, as Paul did in Romans 1 verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. We have no reasonable excuse that we can utilize for not understanding that the great God of heaven made this, that he formulated it, he designed it, he brought it into being. And so indeed, on one hand, the physical world testifies to God's greatness, but is it not also fair to say that God, if he chooses to do so, can act miraculously? By that, we mean the following. At the very bottom of that screen, there, of course, are many references to the physical character of this universe found in the Bible itself, just as the one we mentioned in Romans 1 verse 20. But as I mentioned earlier, we also find roughly 140 miracles recorded in the Bible. Roughly 140, of which about 80 are in the Old Testament, and somewhat over 50 of them are in the New. And so as we read these, again, there's a sufficient number listed that we appreciate the fact that they were a part of the appropriate will of God in that day and at that time. He was able to accomplish His will and physical means if He so chose, but on these occasions He could choose miraculous means again if that was His will. As we come to that point in the lesson, though, consider just a few of the examples. Again, we'll not list nearly all of those 140, but could we not notice that we might well begin with creation? As we read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we easily see that God spoke and things came to be. Now, science cannot do that. That is not something repeatable in any laboratory anywhere around the world. In fact, didn't the Hebrew writer affirm by way of commentary in Hebrews 11:3, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are made were not, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Thus, the opening miracle of the Bible is creation itself. But that only hastens us toward a vast number of others, and some of the most interesting episodes in all the word of God have a miracle involved in them. For example, in Exodus 14, we read there that very interesting episode of when the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea on dry ground and there were walls of water on each side. That is not happening today. No earthquake could make that happen. Water does not congeal and maintain a shape apart from a container that it's in. And yet it did on that occasion. Or that scene in Numbers 22 verse 28 when a donkey had opportunity to talk. That does not happen today. Doesn't matter how often one may coach and try to make a donkey talk, it just simply will not happen. But is it not also interesting that so many others in the Old Testament, such as Joshua chapter 10, when the sun stood still for a day, that has not happened since. For that length of period of time, it has not occurred. Now in the days of Hezekiah, it was moved back 10 degrees in the sundial. But in Joshua's day, for the sun to stand still, that was an event, a tremendous one at that, but it makes our mind recognize the true greatness of the power of God. A number of others that we might choose to list. In 2 Kings 5, the healing of Naaman's leprosy. On that occasion, where might we appreciate today that one can dip seven times in the Jordan River and find leprosy to be healed? I'd submit to you that if that could be done today, all lepers would soon make their way to the Jordan River. But that doesn't happen today. Furthermore, what about that scene when Daniel was miraculously preserved in that den of lions in the sixth chapter of Daniel? 
As we come to the New Testament, Jesus turned water to wine in John chapter 2. And he did so as a tremendous means of accomplishing a grand lesson for those present at that marriage feast. Later, he healed 5,000 men alone with but five loaves and two fish. To say that those things are truly remarkable, truly fantastic, is but an understatement. Notice also that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Our Savior himself resurrected from the dead. All of those things tell us that the Bible is filled with references to miracles, filled with reference to these things that truly expand the character of the mind, for no scientist can duplicate any of them. In fact, that alone leads us to say that the miraculous as well as the non-miraculous are easily accomplishable by God. If His power is unlimited, He can accomplish that which you and I might call miraculous just as easily as He can accomplish that which you and I would call non-miraculous. Neither is a great thing for Him. That does, of course, though, make a tremendous distinction for you and me. For we seem to call that which is miraculous by a very different kind of description. In fact, that's the very definition of the word miracle. At the bottom of that screen, might we notice with some care the definition of a miracle? For in many ways, this is what some seem to fail to appreciate today. Not all things that people have a tendency to call a miracle is really a miracle. A miracle is an event in which the natural order as expressed in the laws of science is suspended. That is, an event takes place that is beyond the bounds of the occurrence of natural scientific law. For that moment, the laws of science have been abandoned. They've been suspended, as was the case, for instance, when the sun stood still. Who is able to stop what scientist that is, the rotation of earth? What scientist is able to fix the sun in place and not allow it to continue its revolution around the center of the galaxy? But it happened on that occasion. What person by any means is able to fill pots with water and yet make grape juice come out when the pots are opened? No one can do that. What person is able to enter any cemetery and make someone rise from the dead? No man can do that. You see, then some of those matters that are often called a miracle by common individuals, by those of our world, really are not a miracle by that definition. And we shall have to return to that idea a bit later in the lesson this morning. But as we consider the fact and character of miracles, let us now notice that the Bible has testified so powerfully of them. What was their purpose? For what reason were they allowed to be done? If we turn to the various pages in the Word of God, we shall find rather quickly that those miracles testified to the greatness, the power, and the sovereignty of God. That is to say, they had a purpose in which they were to sustain and lead men to appreciate the absolute might and greatness of God. Now, there were times, of course, they had secondary lessons and secondary purposes as well. But it would seem that the singular matter related to them was this one. In Exodus 7 verse 5, for example, on that occasion when God was speaking with Moses and commissioning him to go into the land of Egypt and bring my people forth... God expressly said that in light of those signs and those miracles, they shall know that I am God. Those miracles, those plagues that were to be brought upon the children of Egypt, 
It was such that by the occurrence of them, they were to know, and not only the Israelites, but the Egyptians were to know that there's a God in heaven who rules over the matters of this universe. In addition to that passage, could we not remember also in Judges 6, verses 11 and following, there in the days of Gideon, when there was a dearth of miracles, even Gideon made the confession that if you are God, there ought to be miracles here amongst this people. And God, in fact, informed him or gave him the capability of performing great things in the days that lay ahead in his life. It's an amazing thing, though, that even Gideon confessed the reality that miracles correspond with the power of God. Later also in John 11, verses 4 and 40, this was the scene related to the very raising of Lazarus, but at the outset of that chapter, word came to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. And he made a monumental utterance on that occasion. He said, This sickness is not unto death, but that the power of God might be manifest. You see, Jesus understood what was to transpire. Lazarus would die, but he said that this event would be such that resurrection, that is to say, come back to, the, to life but it would be for the purpose of exhibiting the power of God. As God's power is thus seen in the accomplishment of these miraculous things we read of in the Bible, it often had the very result which was intended. Individuals came to trust and to believe in the person delivering that message. They came to have confidence that there was, in fact, the great God of heaven behind it. To say all of that is to say that those miracles authenticated not only the one delivering the message, but also the message itself. We should remember that these things occurred in a day before the written canon or the Holy Scriptures completed in their entirety as we have today. You and I can open the Scriptures, read about the beauty and power of God and the character of His gospel message. But in that day, for instance, of the Old Testament, they had not a complete and firm written record of all things relative to the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament era, the book of Revelation, for example, wasn't complete until the last decade of the first century. As they thus often had the word delivered by word of mouth, by those proclaimers and preachers, it would have been a powerful matter if that preacher could work a miracle and thus lend credence to the message that he taught. So often, in fact, that's precisely what took place. A word that is translated that has, in fact, a great meaning attached to it. You and I often will read the word miracle in the King James Version of the Bible. But as that word appears, it is the translation of a Greek word that really means sign. And in fact, the American Standard translates it sign more often than not. Some of the most famous of those passages that relate to miracles, in fact, are translated in the American Standard with the word sign. Does that not indicate then that these miracles were performed as a sign of not only the one performing them, but the power of the one operating through him? A nature related to the authenticated message that he was proclaiming. The nature that he was a person from God and that his message was, in fact, heavenly approved. In many instances, that's exactly what we see in the sacred text, isn't it? I've listed some examples for us to consider at the very bottom of that screen. In John 4, verse 54, 
This was the occasion in the scriptures, and the King James says it was Jesus' second miracle. It was the healing of the nobleman's son. However, the American Standard says it was the second sign which Jesus did. That is to say, it was a means, a manifestation of the power of God through the Savior that gave great credence to not only him, but that message he was proclaiming. But consider another in John 6, verse 14. This was the feeding of the 5,000, and as that came to an end again, it's called a miracle in the King James translation. But the American Standard says it was a sign. And oh, what a great sign it would have been for this host of individuals to eat of but five loaves and two fish and all be filled, and yet baskets of fragments collected at the, er, at the very conclusion of it. Perhaps two other examples. In John 10, verse 41, as well as John 12, verse 18, both of them are called signs in the American Standard Translation. And thus, a miracle is not merely performed, never was performed then just for the purpose of elevating the reputation from a human standpoint of those who did them. They had a much higher purpose than that. The purpose had to relate to the message of God through them and the character of who they were as emissaries or ambassadors of heaven. Again, they weren't made just for the empty purpose of a vain relation to the person himself. Again, the purpose was far nobler, far higher, far greater than that. Perhaps one of the next thoughts that we might appreciate has to do more clearly with those passages that we've already read. In the reading this morning from Hebrews, the second chapter, we as we will refer to that in just a moment, be reminded of the greatness of how the Bible itself testifies to the occurrence of these miracles and what purpose they served. For now, let's use the words of Jesus. In Matthew 11, when two of John's disciples, John the Baptist that is, came to Jesus, they said, Art thou one that should come, or do we seek for another? John at that time was in prison, and he sent these two to inquire of the Savior relative to the nature of who he was, and was he the promised Messiah? Oh, how we might reflect upon how Jesus responded. He did not come out and say, yes. Rather, he said, you go back and tell John what you have seen. The fact that the lame are able to walk, and the blind are able to see, and the fact that in those that are dead are raised. Jesus said, These miracles that I have done provide ample testimony to who I am. If we may but paraphrase what he said. You go back and tell John all the miracles, the things you've witnessed and seen, and they should provide ample evidence and ample testimony that I am indeed the Messiah, the one that should come, the one who is the very one sent from heaven to accomplish the will of God. As they went back and relayed that information to John, it would seem that John learned that valiant and valuable lesson. But consider yet another example. In John 3, verse number 2, as Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, how did he open his discussion with the Savior? He said, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Even Nicodemus understood that those miracles testified to the greatness of who the Lord was, and that he was, in fact, a teacher sent from heaven. 
with that as the basic thrust and idea then of those miracles, let us look at some extended passages that teach so clearly the nature of them. Might we begin in John 20, verses 30 and 31. As we thus will focus our efforts and lay some emphasis upon the nature of these words, miracles, and the purpose they served, notice that Jesus himself, at the very end of the book of John, we have this statement about him. It says, interestingly, but also so powerfully, Truly, many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So John, as you wrote that gospel according to John, what did you record? Miracles or signs? Why did you record them? Even though many others did he, these are written that you might believe. These, you see, provide ample evidence for us that we too, like John, would believe in the nature of that which is recorded about Jesus. Oh, how interesting it is to remember that he could walk on water. Here was one who we see the law of gravity and the nature of surface tension temporarily suspended while he walked on water and gave Peter the power to do the same. Here was one who could walk into that cemetery in John 11 and raise Lazarus from the dead. A temporary suspension of the nature of that power concerning life and death. You see, that spirit that had departed the body of Lazarus was brought back. It re-entered that body and back to life he came. As we consider those, does that not rush us to Mark the 16th chapter, verse 20? For there we find the very last verse of that book. Truly, we see again the presence of the word miracles and the signs conformed, confirmed by them. Truly again, God worked with them, confirming the word with signs following. Note the word confirm. What were the purpose of the signs or the God working through them to affirm miraculous things, to confirm that word that they had to share, to confirm that word that they were to preach? That text that was read in our hearing a bit earlier from Hebrews, the second chapter. Let us again read that and notice with some emphasis verse 4. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. If we pause a moment and ask, how was that word confirmed? Verse number 4, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles. That confirmation then that corresponded to the capability of that, early, that first century word was confirmed by way of miracles by way of signs and wonders, and furthermore, gifts of the Holy Ghost according unto His will. We notice then that that was the purpose of those miracles, as we read of them in the New Testament, to confirm the Word and to confirm the nature of the message that those first century preachers preached with such power and evidence. Having thus stated the character of that word, we've already clearly answered that first question we asked. Miracles did exist in biblical times. Abundant evidence to that point, and even the reason for them is so clearly stated. 
to authenticate that word and confirm that it was the message of heaven. To say that, though, is to also say, was everybody able to perform miracles? Was it the case that just any person in any city at any time in that era was able to perform miracles? Or was it restricted to certain individuals who, in fact, had a certain capability or power? As you and I turn to that aspect of the lesson, might we appreciate that in terms of miracles, we also have abundant answer to that latter point. For consider the following with me. Jesus obviously was able to perform miracles. We've noted that a number of his miracles are recorded in the New Testament, and we've already listed several of them this morning. I made note there that approximately 35 miracles performed by Jesus are recorded in, in the gospel accounts of the New Testament. But he, of course, wasn't the only one empowered to perform miracles. Those apostles could do the same. I have headed that second listing by a very careful usage of the term Holy Spirit. For there are those who had the special gift of miracles by virtue of the Holy Spirit. There's a text found in 1 Corinthians 12 I'd ask you to note with me. It's found in the opening part of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. And it reads, beginning in verse number 7, as follows. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles. And if we but pause there, we might readily recall that that was the inspired listing of various miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that were understood and practiced in that first century era. And notice that Paul expressly said, some have been given by the Holy Spirit the capability of performing miracles. Now that clearly means not everyone could. In a given congregation, there are some who had various of those capabilities and spiritual gifts and powers, but of that number, some were able to perform miracles. Who were that some? Well, the apostles. We often read about the fact Jesus gave them the power to perform miracles. In the limited commission, for example, when he sent them forth in Matthew chapter 10, they were given the clear power of healing, the clear power of casting out demons out of individuals. The apostles thus had that power. And is it not easy for us to remember that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit? And notice in Hebrews 2, 4, that Spirit is what gave them that opportunity and power to perform those miracles. As we make observation of that point, Jesus had promised them that. In Acts 1, verse 5, the Spirit would come upon you with power, He told them. In Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, they were baptized in that Spirit and on the spot, able to speak in languages they'd never learned, able to speak in tongues. Those same apostles had that power then to perform miracles. But to make that statement is to say that we have examples of where they did it. Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 9, raised Dorcas. Did he not also heal Aeneas in a very nearby city, again in Acts chapter 9? Perhaps it's also worthy to note, though, that the apostles could lay their hands on individuals and transmit that capability also. In fact, that very example is given to us in terms of both Stephen and Philip. 
Neither of those were apostles, but yet they each could perform miracles as testified by Stephen himself in Acts chapter 7 and by Philip in Acts chapter 8. For when Philip came into the region there of Samaria, they in fact paid great heed to that which he said because of those signs and miracles that he was able to perform. But at this point, we should very clearly note, could those on whom the apostles had laid their hands lay their hands on others and transmit that power as well? The answer is an absolute no. Even though the apostles could lay their hands on others and transmit that power, and that's the very thing that Simon wanted to buy in Acts chapter 8, they themselves, that is those on whom the apostles had laid their hands, they could not lay their hands on others and transmit that power of the Holy Spirit. For otherwise, in Acts 8, there would have been no reason for Peter and John to come from Jerusalem. For Philip could have laid his hands on those individuals. So at this point, we must learn the very valiant lesson. What was it that enabled these to accomplish miracles then? It was that power associated directly with the Holy Spirit. Those apostles had been baptized in it. They had laid their hands on others and gave them that opportunity and capability. However, since they, those on whom their hands had been laid, could not pass it on themselves, and since no one today is baptized in the Holy Spirit... What conclusion seems to necessarily follow? All of these, of course, lived in the time of inspiration. They lived in that day and time when the direct measure of the Holy Spirit was available. But is it available today? Let us allow the Bible to answer that question for us. Do miracles still occur today? Let us see. The scriptures that we shall consider on this screen are those that answer directly to the discussion before us. Let us begin in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We noted earlier in reading from that chapter that there were gifts of miracles and healing and various other things. In fact, Paul lists nine of them. However, as he reached the end of the chapter, he said in verse 31, But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. There was a means, a way that was superior to these. Paul called it the more excellent way. Even though these miracles are great and they're mighty and they're truly able to accomplish the intended purpose of them, Paul said there's a more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? 1 Corinthians 13 informs us of what that is, the very next chapter. And if we might go directly to verse number 8, let us begin reading there. And read through verse number 12. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. For when we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Notice in the listing, earlier in chapter 12, nine spiritual gifts had been listed. And among them were knowledge and tongues and prophecies and also miracles. But then when he arrives at chapter 13, after having noted a more excellent way is to come, 
he now says, where their tongues they're going to seize, where there's knowledge it shall vanish, where there are these prophecies they shall fail. He listed three out of the nine in representation of the whole, affirming that they are going to pass, they will cease. Thus, that miraculous gift of healing and that miraculous gift in whatever way it was otherwise mentioned are to pass. For notice, he says, clearly in verse number 10, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. May we ask, what is that which is perfect? If we could identify what that is, it would greatly aid us in our understanding of the fullness of the rest of that text. Paul, what is it that is perfect? There are some who would claim that the perfect is Jesus. And hence, when Jesus came, indeed, he was perfect in that he lived sinlessly. And as such, then, the time of miracles came into the world most fully then and have continued ever since under the gospel ministration. We cannot accept that type of interpretation. The language will not permit it. The word perfect does not refer to Jesus. If we return and consider more carefully, it says, but when that which is perfect, it didn't say who, it said that. And in the Greek, the word is neither masculine nor is it feminine, it's neuter. It is not talking about a person. What is that, that thing which is perfect, which would come? Maybe some other text will help us see the full meaning of it. For instance, in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, might we remember, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be, what? Perfect. Whatever it was under discussion there was that which would produce or enable perfection on the part of those interested in accomplishing the will of God. There it was the Scriptures. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, again, might we remember that Paul made reference to that perfect will of God. What Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 13, 10 as that perfect thing that would come was the completion of the Holy Scriptures. At the time Paul wrote that, the entirety of the Scriptures had not been completed, but they soon would be. And when that which is perfect is come, Paul said, then that which is in part... The capability of miraculous measures will, be, will pass away. Thus, when the last apostle died, and the last person upon whom the apostles had laid their hands died, the capability of miracles has passed from this world. No longer are humans able to perform miracles. The purpose for which they were originally given was accomplished. The word had been confirmed. And when it finally was put into writing... And thus all men had access to it, having been confirmed already. The purpose for miracles had ceased. In fact, it might well be described in the same way that you and I picture the construction of a building today. In Cookville, when a large building is being built, the men use scaffolding around that building to aid them in the construction. They can climb on the scaffolding and put the various layers, the brick, for example, on the outside of the building, the scaffolding is a means of support for them while the building is being completed. But once the building is complete, there's no longer a need for the scaffolding. It is taken down and removed. Once the building in its perfection was complete, 
Once the Holy Scriptures were finalized and by the will of God perfected as they were, there was no longer a need for the scaffolding that was meant to confirm it. Thus the time of miracles has now ceased. Those who thus today would say that that time still does exist are sorely deluding themselves. For after all, if it really were the case that miracles could be done in the same way they were done in biblical times, we might well know that every hospital ought to be empty. <laughs> every cemetery virtually ought to be empty. Every sick person, infirmed person ought to be healed. For notice on many occasions the healing of the, of the Lord's ministry did not depend on the knowing faith of those who were healed. He sometimes healed those who seemed to have doubts. Today, you see, there are no miracles like there were then. Can we not then summarize our lesson in the following ways? As interesting as miracles are, and as much as we enjoy the study and the visualization of them, might we appreciate that by definition they're an event in which the laws and perspectives of science are superseded, suspended, if you will. And we notice that even though that did happen in the Bible times, the time for them has passed. They are not able to be performed today. And thus, those who are waiting for a miracle to happen in their life in order to, for instance, obey the gospel, they're waiting for something that will never, ever happen. For there will be no miracle this side, if you will, of that great day when all the dead and will be raised, righteous and unrighteous alike. For on that occasion, God will infuse each with that spirit that has passed from them, and they will rise to meet the Lord in judgment. Will you be ready for that judgment? Are you ready now for that judgment? For it could happen at any moment. If we could assist anyone today in your obedience to the gospel, Jesus calls everyone by the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. He has issued that call and a great invitation it is. Will you spurn his offer today? knowing that perhaps you need to respond, but will you delay? Will you procrastinate? Will you spurn him one more time? Or will you with great love in your heart thank him for his opportunity of salvation? And will you respond in loving obedience to him? If we could assist you today in doing that, we'd be happy to do so. The baptismal waters behind me are prepared and ready. If there's one or more that may need to be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, we could accomplish that in just a few moments. If there may be one or more in need of rededication of your life, come back to the Savior's side at once. Don't remain far from Him, for you're in fact in the bad wastelands separated from Jesus. Come back to the nearness of His side and know the power and love of His ability to lead you through life. If we could help you today in your response to Jesus, will you not let that be known even now while together we stand and while we sing?